on this episode of Jeff Does Vegas. So my opinion on this is that it is purely corporate welfare for billionaire owners and millionaire players. There's absolutely no reason that the public should be handing over taxpayer money to people who can afford to do this on their own. And we can see it right in Vegas. Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff. And this is Jeff Does Vegas. Welcome to episode number 158 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get rolling for this episode of the podcast, I want to thank my guest from the last episode of the show, Las Vegas food and restaurant critic and creator of the website Eating Las Vegas, John Curtis. John and I talked about how he became a food critic, how the Vegas food scene has changed over the years, and what the future holds for Las Vegas when it comes to restaurants and cuisines. John was also kind enough to share some of his favorite and not so favorite dining experiences. If you haven't listened as of yet, you can find the episode in the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out Bon Appetit, a conversation with John Curtis. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Professional sports is about more than just the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. It's grown into a massive global industry that contributes hundreds of millions of dollars to the economy. So it should really come as absolutely no shock to anyone that Las Vegas wants a piece of that action. According to some experts, the impact that pro sports can have on a community goes way beyond what happens on the field or at the rink. Job creation, tax revenue, infrastructure development, and increased tourism are often cited as being big benefits of having a pro sports franchise in your city or playing host to a big event like the Super Bowl or a Formula One race. These are also often brought up as benefits when team owners are trying to convince governments to hand over tax dollars to build new stadiums, as is the case in Las Vegas right now with the likely relocation of Major League Baseball's Oakland A's to the south end of the Vegas Strip. But are these impacts real? Do communities actually see any major economic benefit from pro sports being in their cities? And is there an upside to a state or province handing hundreds of millions of dollars in public money to billionaire team owners to build sports facilities? My guest for this episode of the podcast is here to answer these questions and many more. Victor Matheson is a professor of economics and accounting specializing in sports economics at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. He's published numerous research articles on the economic impact of hosting mega sporting events, as well as the economics of sports stadiums, including the effects of public financing of sports facilities. Please enjoy my conversation with Victor Matheson. So the economics part is easy, right? Uh, it's just, uh, you know, kind of having a love of math, a love of finance, uh, a love of numbers, 
uh, getting into the teaching side means you, uh, you know, you like communicating with people. So uh, economics was a pretty uh, simple choice. Um, and uh, so I was an economics and math major in college, went on to get a PhD at the University of Minnesota. And then I moved uh, to Chicago because I got married and took a job uh, at Lake Forest College, which is a small liberal arts college in the, in the northern suburbs of Chicago. And I was just planning to become any sort of regular old economist. And as it turns out, uh, the guy in the office next to me was the uh, person who wrote all the seminal articles on the economic impact of stadiums on local uh, economies. And so, yeah, the, the economics part was kind of planned. I always had that in my mind for a while. But being a sports economist is is total serendipity. Happen to take a job where I've got one of the world's great sports economists uh, in the office next to me. We hit it off. And here I am 25 years later, having written books and articles and talked to uh, reporters and and been on podcasts for years now uh, talking about this super cool subject. And so, I mean, obviously, I assume you are a sports fan. So strangely, I'm kind of a sports fan. Okay. Uh, I'm actually uh, what what's. Uh, I, I don't watch a ton of ESPN, um, but uh, I am a I am a huge soccer fan, uh, and I actually uh, was a referee in Major League Soccer, uh, so I was a high level soccer referee, and I, I continue to be a referee uh, is as a Division One college soccer referee. Although the writing is on the wall because the problem with college soccer is every year the players are the same age. And, uh, and, and I and my knees and the rest of me are not the same age. So, uh, we'll see how many more seasons of college soccer I have in front of me. But, uh, I've been super, uh, involved, uh, in soccer, uh, as a participant, uh, for lots of years. And, you know, I'm a, I'm an, I'm a casual sports fan, uh, but I'm a huge, uh, you know, uh, fan of, the economics and the business behind sports. Have you ever been involved in in the business side of sports at all, other than just have you done any consulting or have you actually done any work in the sports industry? So typically I have not worked uh, with the teams themselves, although I have been involved uh, at times uh, peripherally with teams and leagues. Uh, for example, I was uh, hired by CONCACAF to try to determine damages in one of the uh, FIFA corruption trials. I have had uh, I've had cases where I've tried to estimate the uh, value lost when players have gotten injured uh, through uh, medical malpractice uh, issues. Uh, uh, I talked to the lawyers involved in the women's soccer uh, a, a fair play trial. Uh, you know, I, I wrote an amicus brief or was part of writing an amicus brief on the on the uh, in the Alston case. That's uh, about paying uh, college players. Uh, so, yeah, I, you know, been a, a, a involved a bunch in, in consulting purposes there, but uh, I've never done anything, for example, like uh, Moneyball. Right. Uh, so I haven't worked with Billy Bean and said, hey, you know who you should draft uh, next week is this guy because of this magic statistic no one else knows about. So I haven't done uh, I haven't done team management in any of that way, uh, but uh, certainly worked on arena deals and worked on uh, or generally against arena deals, but worked in the arena deal process and and worked in other aspects like that. So sports has obviously become a, a massive business and a, a massive industry. If you had to ballpark it, no pun intended, or maybe pun intended, um, how much cash does pro sports actually contribute to the economy? I mean, can you even really put a number on that? 
So, so surprisingly small is the answer. Uh, although sports are growing fairly quickly, uh, you know, sports are growing faster than than other parts of the of the uh, economy. Uh, but surprisingly small, if you add up the revenues of all of the big five sports leagues in the United States, right? NBA, NHL, uh, NFL, uh, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer. Uh, throw in the WNBA, throw in NASCAR, throw in the PGA, throw in the WTA, uh, throw in all college sports, right? Throw in all the revenues directly generated by the Power Five conferences and by March Madness. Uh, throw in the occasional Olympics every four years and the World Cup. Again, this is money being dr- uh, generated directly by the leagues itself. Um it totals about $85 billion. Now, that may seem like a lot of money, um, but $85 billion is roughly the same size as Johnson & Johnson Corporation. Uh, I don't get called on to do a lot of podcasts about Johnson & Johnson and Band-Aids, <laughs> right? Um, the NFL, which is the biggest uh, revenue uh, generator of any sports league in the world, has about the same annual revenues as Sherwin-Williams, the paint store. Uh, so, you know, big culturally, we talk about it and we're interested in it, uh, but not very big in terms of actual amount of revenue it directly generates. And so I guess then the question is the the sort of tangential um, revenue that's generated by sports. A lot of uh, experts in the the topic and in the field, particularly when they're trying to convince sports teams to move to a city, uh, one of the big things they always push are the the so called economic benefits for a city in in having professional sports. It, what are some of those benefits that kind of get pushed out there? Okay, so some of the potential benefits, obviously there's benefits to the actual team itself, right? Uh, so again, ticket sales, media sales, uh, uh, re- uh, revenue from Jersey. I'm, I'm currently wearing a soccer jersey from Bermuda of all places. So that's revenue being generated by the Bermuda Soccer Federation there. Um, so, you know, those are the, those are some direct revenues to the teams. Uh, there's some indirect revenues there as well, right? So you can think, well, uh, what about, you know, the suppliers who are selling the hot dogs to the uh, to the team? But actually, that doesn't really count. Right. Because if you're selling the hot dog for six dollars, we are already counting that as revenue. Uh, you don't want to count every uh, stage in the uh, in the uh, in the supply chain there because that will be counting things, uh, uh, you know, more than once. Uh, so you don't want to do that. Uh, you do have some things being uh, bought associated with the team that the team might not capture. So someone who goes out to a sports bar and uh, when the when the Minnesota Twins are on, that's my baseball team. Uh, when the Twins are on, you go watch them and you spend money at the sports bar. Great. So there's some revenue you might count uh, if I go and travel. Uh, I actually am traveling here uh, in, to uh, Australia uh, to go to the Women's World Cup, at least in part, uh, to go watch games there. That's money that I'm spending on hotels and on food there and things like that. Uh, that's revenue. Um, you might say, look, uh, something like a jersey, if you do buy it, uh, you know, you buy a, uh, you know, you buy a, uh, who a joker, right? A Jokic, uh, a jersey, right? And that might sell for a hundred dollars, but if the NBA only gets 10 of it, 20 of it, then there's another $80 being generated somewhere else. So you can add up and say, you know, there's some of these knock on effects, but that actually happens in any industry. Uh, it's not something that's unique in sports. And one thing you really have to worry about is uh, is what's known as the substitution effect. So uh, if someone goes and goes to a Minnesota Twins game, uh, who's a local resident of the Twin Cities, that's someone who's not going and doing something else that night in the local economy. So they may not be going to 
to the local restaurant, right? Or if I go to a sports bar instead of the sushi place that doesn't have the game on, uh, yeah, I've spent money at the sports bar, but that sushi restaurant has taken uh, taken a hit there. And think about Vegas, right? Okay, let's imagine we have a baseball team coming in there. Who is going to be going to those games? Is it going to be drawing in new people to Vegas? Is it going to be drawing in the Minnesota Twins fan who comes to Vegas for this and would never have come to Vegas otherwise? Or is it a person who's on a regular Vegas vacation who goes then to an, an A's game uh, and you might say, well, look at all the money they're spending at the A's game. But if they were coming to Vegas anyway, and they're going to the A's instead of Britney Spears, they're actually spending a lot less money. And if they're spending four hours in a ballpark, and I guess maybe three hours in a ballpark now that uh, Major League Baseball sped up the game, uh, but three hours in the ballpark as opposed to three hours at a blackjack table, that's actually a huge negative for the Vegas economy because that's not money. That's uh, money being generated by the local economy at a much lower rate if you're expecting people to spend money at a ballpark on peanuts and popcorn and Cracker Jack rather than uh, blowing through hundreds of dollars an hour at a, at a, at a blackjack table. Some of the big benefits that always get pushed as well, particularly when we get into talking about things like uh, stadiums and facilities and large events coming, they talk about tax revenue and job creation and all of these kind of big benefits with a city like Las Vegas, where you've already got, 40 to 50 million people coming every year anyways and spending all their money. Does Vegas really get those same alleged benefits as other cities, as a city, say like a, a, a Calgary or, or a Toronto or, or Cincinnati, or I'm just throwing out random cities at this point, but do they see that same benefit? Yeah, I think it is fair to say that Vegas is unique, right? Uh, the question is whether it's unique in a way that's beneficial for Vegas or in a way that's actually harmful for Vegas, right? Uh, so it is absolutely the case that a baseball team in particular can generate some amount of tourism revenue. We don't see any tourism at all associated with the NHL or NBA Literally, you don't even know, like looking at hotel revenue, for example, that the teams are in town. Um, the NFL does generate some. You can tell when a team is in town if you look at hotel uh, room data, um, except that only happens eight times a year. So that's not a very big uh, generator at all. Even if it's thousands of hotel rooms every time they play a home game, when if you're only multiplying it by eight, that's not much. Um, the end, the Major League Baseball actually does generate some tourism for a variety of reasons. It happens in the summer when we we tend to have a little bit more time to go off. I, I'm not heading to Denver on a Wednesday to watch the Nuggets, right? Uh, I got a job. But in the summer, you know, that might be part of a regular vacation. Um, it, there's also tickets available, ticket, uh, uh, you know, in a way that it's not easy to say, hey, I'm while I'm in Denver, I'm going to go see a Nuggets game because it's it's hard to get into that game, but it's easy to get a a, a ticket at, at Coors Field, right? Uh, so that happens as well. So uh, and of course, it happens 81 times a year as opposed to eight, which gives you a lot more opportunity to generate some some uh, some tourism. the The problem is that even if you're generating say 60,000 hotel room nights. And that's not far off from what we've seen in some of the data with Major League Baseball. 60,000 hotel room nights is actually not much revenue 
Uh, and it's certainly not enough to justify the sort of, you know, the three or four hundred million dollars that Las Vegas has been kicking around at, at throwing out, out, out of the team. So Vegas may be unique in some ways in that it's got a gigantic uh, uh, tourism industry. One of the cool things about Vegas is your hotel rooms aren't going to fill up because the baseball team's in town. Uh, Kansas City, if Kansas City is playing the Yankees, uh, you're going to have a hard time getting a hotel room, which means that what's happening with the Royals is crowding out other potential economic activities. So uh, that's not going to happen in Vegas. So that's helpful. Um, and of course, you might say, well, look, I can make baseball part of an entire vacation to Vegas in a way you might say, hey, I'm not going to go to Cincinnati for, uh, you know, for a week. I'm going to see a couple games, and then what else am I going to do in Cincinnati? Uh, that might not happen. Uh, here's what's the problem with Vegas is the two big problems with Vegas are what are known as casual visitors. Casual visitors are people who go to a game from out of town, but they would have been there anyway. Um, it's tempting to count them as benefits, but they were going to be in town spending money anyway. And the fact that they're doing it at the stadium isn't uh, isn't impressive. You haven't generated any new tourism. You've just given your tourists one more place to spend their money. But that then, of course, leads to the substitution effect. If they're spending money at the stadium instead of at the casino, that's almost certainly a huge net loss for Vegas. And if they're spending money at a relatively inexpensive uh, baseball game rather than a wildly expensive Blue Man group or, uh, again, Britney Spears or take your choice of the million entertainment options you can have in Vegas, that's also probably a net loss for the city. It's interesting that you bring up that casual point because I've been, I mean, I'm a, you know, as a Canadian, I'm legally obligated to like hockey and be a hockey fan. And I have gone to Vegas specifically for Vegas Golden Knights games. I'm a Winnipeg Jets fan. I'm born and raised in Winnipeg. So I've gone specifically for Jets games. But at the same time, I've also gone down to Vegas and been there anyways and saw, oh, hey, there's a, there's a Knights game on. You know what? I got nothing to do tonight. I'll see if I can get a ticket. And I get a ticket and I go to the game. So that's, that's an interesting point. I hadn't really thought of that that whole casual visitor side. Right. And, and I again, I've done both as well, right? Uh, that I've certainly been at conferences or I've been in vacations where, uh, what should we do? Oh, the, you know, again, the Twins are in town. The Rockies are in town. The uh, Atlanta Hawks are in town. Let's go see one of those sort of games. Um, uh, most recently I was in Austin and, and, uh, the MLS team was playing. So yeah, I went to an MLS game. Uh, so that was great. Um, but, uh, but I, you know, I've also traveled specifically to let's go here because the Mets are in town on Friday and the Yankees are in town on Sunday and we can get in both stadiums at the same time. So I've done that again. I'm going to Australia here, uh, for the women's world cup. Um, I was probably going to go anyway because I had lived there, you know, uh, years ago and my kids wanted to go. But this is a good excuse for us to go. Um, and, and it's not 100 percent clear that we would have gone if without the impetus of the World Cup. Um, but it also means that almost certainly I'm not going back to Australia anytime soon either, because this is not a, oh, you know, we'll go a, a bunch of times. So it may be that I've just rearranged that time I'm going to Australia from you know, sometime last year or in the future couple of years to this year to coincide with something. So that's what's called a time switcher. Uh, again, another term in economics where a person goes and goes 
you know, in part arranges their vacation because this is there. Um, but, you know, it means that going this time rather than another time. So, again, think about a Vegas vacation. You're saying, hey, uh, when do you want to go? You want to go the first weekend in August or the last weekend in July? And you say, oh, uh, let's go last weekend in July because the A's are in town. That wouldn't have changed whether you go, but it did change the time when you went. Uh, but again, that's not a net uh, positive impact for the city because you were going no matter what. Looking at the the uniqueness of Vegas, I mean, over the last five to six years, Vegas has just blown up as a, a pro sports city. I mean, between the Knights and the Raiders relocating and, and they've got USL soccer now and they've got WNBA and you've got Super Bowl coming next year and Formula One in the fall. It, Looking at it from your economist brain, why do you think Vegas is seeing such a huge growth in pro sports in such a, a short period of time? And is it sustainable? Is there such a thing as a, a, a oversaturation of the market? Okay, so let's start with the first couple of things. Yes, uh, the we've gone from a place where 10 years ago, Vegas was the largest city in the United States without a major professional sports franchise. Now we are now Vegas is the uh, poised to become the smallest city in the United States with three major sports franchises. Again, apologies to WNBA and, and USL. I don't mean to impugn them. I really actually do like the WNBA quite a bit. And of course, I love USL soccer having refereed in it. Uh, but. They have gone from being way undersported to potentially oversported, and we'll see how the A's deal all works out here in the end. Uh, so that you're, you're definitely in a world where this is a very small market for the number of teams that they look like they're going to have. So, and that's changed. Why? Uh, the answer is a hundred percent gambling, and the reason is is that ten years ago. Uh, most sports leagues in the United States were still terrified of sports gambling. Uh, that when they see, when they think sports gambling 10 years ago, they think Black Sox, they think Tim Donaghy and the NBA, uh, refing scandal, they think, uh, point shaving in college basketball, uh, they think the worst. And of course, that's reasonable. And, and that, that's only a, a, a scratching the surface. Uh, we, I mean, Cricket worldwide, wildly dirty, um, gigantic number of, of, of cases in soccer of, of people being on the take, including one where the, uh, in England, where the, where the field managers were on the take and shut down the power at exactly the right time to, uh, preserve a tie in a, in a game, uh, in the EPL. So, uh, they're terrified of the problems related to corruption and gambling. Ten years ago or so, these attitudes in the United States started to change. They had changed in Europe well before this. And the reason is this. Number one, the amount of money players are making now is high enough that you probably don't need to worry about them too much throwing games. Uh, back when Shoeless Joe Jackson threw the 1919 World Series, and I don't want any listeners to complain about me saying, oh, he didn't do it. He did it, 100%. He took the money. Uh, back when he did that, the only question is whether he actually threw the games. He definitely took the money. Uh, <laughs> when he took $5,000 to throw the, uh, uh, throw the 1919 World Series, he was making about $8,000 that year. And he was one of the highest paid players in Major League Baseball. Uh, so... When you're making 8000 bucks, you can bribe someone with $5,000. 
Now, let's fast forward to Mike Trout, right? Well, first of all, it's not looking like he's ever going to get to the World Series based on how the Angels have been playing for the last decade. But the thing about Mike Trout, is Mike Trout going to throw the World Series? Well, even if he would, the guy makes $40 million a year. Uh, that means you're talking about uh, having to bribe him tens of millions of dollars to make it worthwhile for him to even consider that sort of level of corruption. And 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 no one in in gambling is going to have that sort of money to uh, to to you know cause someone to throw a game like that. So that's number one. The threat of of corruption is way down simply because salaries are way up. Uh, other things is, is they're looking to like England where the EPL has been has had has existed in a world where lots of sports gambling has happened for the last fifty years. And sports level corruption doesn't seem any worse in England than it does in the United States. Not saying it doesn't exist in the, in England and it doesn't exist in the United States, but it doesn't seem any worse. And the last thing is they're looking at this sort of money that is being brought in uh, directly through things like Jersey sponsorships. Now this is changing for next year because, uh, the EPL is a little bit worried about how much uh, sports gambling money is pouring into the league. Uh, but the 10 of their 20, uh, 10 other 20 jersey sponsorships, and that's the that's the most valuable sponsorship for a, a soccer team. Uh, so, you know, what that commercial basically that's put on the front of every player's jersey. 10 out of the 20 teams in the EPL had a had a betting uh, organization as their primary jersey sponsor. So that's a lot of money. Um, and uh, on top of that, having people invested in the game monetarily brings eyeballs. And the NFL certainly saw this with fantasy sports. Uh, you know, you know, why is anyone watching? You know, uh, that that last place team uh, on on Monday night, who is two and fifth, you know, two and fourteen, uh, playing the last game of the season against a five and you know a five and eleven team. Well, I got the starting quarterback right. Uh, so you know, why does anyone watch the Jets? Because I got a jet on my fantasy team, and so they know. Look, if you get people involved in gambling, people will, uh, people will, uh, will tune in more. Um, and, and so, basically, all the leagues changed because they said, "Look, uh, gambling. There's too much money in gambling, and not enough worry about corruption." Uh, and so they all changed their mind. And as soon as they changed their mind, they said, you know, we are no longer afraid of Vegas. We actually love Vegas. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, mind you, the one organization who is still vehemently anti-gambling is the NCAA. Of course, uh, the NCAA is anti-gambling because they've been running this cartel for 100 years where the players don't get paid. And of course, that means players are subject to corruption in the NCAA in a way that you could never bribe LeBron James, but you can bribe the you know uh, players in, in college basketball or college football because there's not the same sort of monetary rewards. And so, you know, the NCAA uh, should be worried about their product uh, because they've created a product that is uniquely subject to corruption. And, I, of course, I should point out how hi hypocritical this is. The NCAA makes a billion dollars a year in, uh, in money. They make it all on the men's March Madness. And of course, why do they, why are they able to sell men's March Madness uh, meteorites for a billion dollars a year? Because everyone's filling out a bracket, right? <laughs> and so the NCA only has money because of gambling. Yeah. Uh, but they are deeply, deeply concerned about gambling and, and take this very righteous approach to we should never have this corruption inducing thing. Uh, so, uh, uh, to me, it's, it's, it's they've they've made their bed now they should sleep in it
Yeah, the NCAA and and Vegas, particularly, I mean, Final Four and, and college basketball is it's it amazed me the first time I ever went to Vegas and uh, during a Final Four or during March Madness and seeing all these people lined up at the sports books to to place their bets. And I was so confused because I'm like, well, the games are not happening here. Why? <laughs> I had no idea that the betting was such a huge thing and that people specifically go to Vegas in March during March Madness to go and sit in the sports books and watch the games. That just absolutely blew me away. And of course, well, they did, right? Uh, and then what happened five years ago, again, at least in part because of the leagues no longer exerting all of their influence to try to stop it from happening, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned what was a federal ban on uh, sports betting. Uh, so uh, prior to five years ago, it was illegal to place a sports bet in the United States anywhere but Las Vegas. Uh, and a little tiny bit in Montana, Oregon, and Delaware, of all things. Uh, but basically, you could only place a bet in, in, in Vegas in any real way. And the Supreme Court overturned that, which didn't make sports betting legal anywhere in the United States, but it allowed every state to legalize sports gambling if they so choose. And about two-thirds of states have chosen to legalize sports gambling. Uh, it's going to be – there's going to be a – about $120 billion worth of bets placed this year in the United States. And that doesn't include Florida, Texas, and California, uh, the three biggest states in the country who have not yet chosen to legalize sports gambling. Uh, you know, when, when those walls fall, uh, we're looking at at least a two or $300 billion a year industry. Wow. That's again, just crazy amounts of money. But again, not surprising either. I know here in Canada, particularly on during hockey season, when we're watching TV, Every second commercial on on the when you're watching the game is for some sort of online sports betting service now to the point where there are various uh, addiction groups and gambling addiction groups here in Canada that have started lobbying the federal government to limit advertising for sports gambling because they're concerned that it's actually causing addictions or exasperating uh, existing addictions with people. And I don't think they're wrong. Uh, we're seeing that here in the United States as well and some real concerns about that. And the UK, where sports gambling, again, has been legal for the last 50 years, they're uh, quite concerned about how uh, it's kind of exploded there. Even though it's been legal forever, there's been this kind of explosion recently. And they're, uh, they're, they're enacting fairly strict limits on, on how much, uh, gambling advertising can take place, uh, during English Premier League games, including, I believe, uh, the removal of, of, uh, Jersey sponsorships, uh, at least from a bunch of those, those folks. I, I don't want to, I don't want to say that for sure, but that that was my understanding. Uh, again, very recent sort of uh, legislation coming through in the last couple months. Coming up, we discuss the success stories when it comes to the economic impact of sporting events on a city. And Victor shares his thoughts and opinions on whether or not public money has a place in the construction of sports venues. That's next on Jeff Does Vegas. The idea of public money being used for paying for facilities and paying for events is is something that that has really come up in the last little while, particularly for Las Vegas related to this whole Oakland A's relocation. I know my personal feelings for me, I'm not a fan of it. I can't stand it. I think it's terrible. I think it's 
my look at it, I guess, from a very simplified side of things as a, a taxpayer and a sports fan is these guys, the owners of these teams are, are multimillionaires, often billionaires. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Multi-billionaires is what you meant to say. <laughs> Who should be able to build these things with the money they find in their couch cushions. Um, Vegas has been a prime example of this in recent with, I mean, Allegiant Stadium is $750 million of, of tax money used through bonds that's slowly being paid off through a hotel tax. Um, Formula One is is asking for $40 million from the city to help cover uh, half of the cost of redoing the track. The Super Bowl is coming, another $40 million in public money there. And and as mentioned, this whole Oakland A's stadium, $380 million bucks. Um, I mean, by contrast, to look at the other side of it, T-Mobile Arena, Vegas Golden Knights was all private money there, no public money used. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I, I've read some of your articles. I've watched some of your lectures. I know you have very strong opinions on the usage of public money for venues and events and, and stadiums and, and, and sports in general. Yeah, so my, yeah. So my opinion on this is that it is purely corporate welfare for billionaire owners and millionaire players. There's absolutely no reason that the public should be handing over taxpayer money to people who can afford to do this on their own. And we can see it right in Vegas, right? Uh, we have a hockey team in a 100% privately financed facility. There's no reason that these folks can't do this. But of course, why would you do this if there's politicians uh, bending over backwards to do to do that? And especially politicians who should know better. Again, Sheldon Adelson, uh, one of the leading contributors to conservative causes in the United States, uh, just behind uh, the Koch brothers. Uh, you know, he's a big uh, uh, casino magnate in Vegas. Uh, always saying about how we should get government out of the people's pockets and get government out of people's lives. He was the leading cheerleader for giving away $750 million to the NFL stadium because, of course, he thought that he was going to benefit a lot with uh, tourists coming in and staying at his casinos and his hotels. Okay, That's terrible, terrible public policy, and it's wild hypocrisy. He's like, well, look, uh, corporate welfare government's terrible when it's helping other people. But if it's giving me money, I'm totally in favor of that. And that's uh, that's the worst sort of politician out of there. It's really bad policy when it comes to the A's. The A's are desperately trying to find some place to play because they uh, they burned all their bridges in Vegas or in, in, in Oakland, which means that they don't have any other options. They need Vegas a lot more than Vegas needs the A's. And if you're any sort of reasonable business person, you should be squeezing every dollar out of the A's that you can because the A's have to go somewhere and they're willing to pay it. Instead, you have the world's worst gamblers, right? The world's worst poker players in the, in the, in the Nevada state legislature of all places. Um, playing poker with like, you know, they've got a royal flush and they're still losing the hand. There's just no reason for them to uh, be handing out any money there. And of course, you know, my, it's my opinion related to billionaire owners and millionaire players. But what's not my opinion and what's actually fact is that now about three decades worth of economic research on this is that professional sports teams, uh, sports uh, uh, ma major events, um, franchises, new arenas, new stadiums uh, have little or no economic impact uh, on local economies. 
again, for the sort of reason we've talked about, you know, substitution effect where they just shuffle around money, substitution, uh, you know, a crowding out effect where one type of tourist is crowded out for another type of tourist. Uh, leakages, and this is where money is spent in a city but doesn't stick in a city. Uh, so for think about the NBA, right? So, so you know, think about an NBA team in 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 Denver, right? Uh, you know, Joker uh, doesn't doesn't live year round in Denver. You know, they pay him forty million dollars, but uh, this is Denver money going into the pocket of this NBA player, and then that player leaves and goes back to Serbia and spends his money there, right? So this is money that not, doesn't stick. If instead you're a Denver resident and you spend money in a local restaurant, you spend it in one of the local breweries, you spend it in this great new Mexican restaurant, thanks to South Park that's coming back, Casa Bonita. Uh, you spend it there. This is a money that is sticking in the Denver economy and gets recirculated in the economy. Instead, Denver people spend money on the Nuggets. A huge amount of that ticket price goes directly into the pocket of Jokic, who is a marvelous player, but he's not a Denver resident. And not only does the money not even initially go to a Colorado resident, it never goes to a Colorado resident, and that Colorado, that non-Colorado resident spends almost none of that money locally. That's basically like the circus coming to town, su- sucking up all the money and leaving town with it. That's not good for the local economy. Again, fantastic for civic pride. And I mean, I grew up in Denver, so it was awesome to see the Nuggets finally win uh, a championship. But in terms of dollars and cents, it's not great at all. That's always the argument that gets made. And I look at something like an event, like say Formula One, for example, coming into Las Vegas, and, and they have spent some serious money in the city, they bought property and they're building a giant facility that's, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. But now, I mean, Formula One is one of the richest sports leagues in the world and is now coming after the city for $40 million to cover the cost of repaving. And the argument being made there, of course, is, well, Formula One's expected to bring a billion and a half dollars into the city over the course of this weekend. And we've made this 10 year commitment. I mean, is that realistic even? When you actually look at data, looking back at actual data rather than making projections about what's going to happen, look back at actually what did happen. Uh, the best estimate you can uh, you can do and, and what I generally tell people, take whatever the league or the team or the or the boosters are saying, move the decimal place one place to the left, and that'll be a pretty good estimate about what actually is going to happen. Really? That that poor yeah. So, I mean, and we've looked at this a ton of times, right? Uh, so we looked at the Super Bowl. Super Bowl, they t- typically come in with numbers somewhere between 400 and $800 million in economic impact. I don't know what they're saying for Vegas, but it'll be probably even bigger than that when uh, when they come through with actual numbers. Uh, but when you actually look for spikes in economic activity in actual data like GDP or taxable sales or hotel receipts, or tourist numbers, or employment, or any of these sort of things that should be reflecting hundreds of millions of dollars pouring into the economy, and we don't get that. Uh, so we get numbers somewhere between 30 and $130 million in boost coming in from the Super Bowl. So again, it's not something you should turn down, um, but it's also not, uh, in the case if it really is only $30 million, it doesn't even cover the, the level of the subsidy that the uh, NFL is asking for here. Uh, and it's certainly a fraction of what is being claimed. 
it always amazes me too how the devil's in the details on these things because once they start drilling down on it, they look at it and go, well, the city's going to give them all this money and or the province or wherever is going to give them all this money and it's going to get used for this. But as the team, we get to keep all the ticket sales from all the events and all the merchandise sales and all the concession sales and we get the parking and we get the- <laughs> and you look at the city handing over 300 or 400 million dollars to these multi-billionaire owners and you look and go yeah but what are we getting out of it oh you get all of this this extra revenue from job creation and the the entertainment district and the restaurants and all this stuff and as we've said there really isn't that benefit there for these buildings uh, yeah, again, the, the data suggests that that is just simply a false piece. And, and even if you say, well, look, well, I've gone to, I've gone to a restaurant after an NBA game, uh, or before an NBA game or before a major league baseball game. I've, I stopped in the bar and it, I've been to Wrigley Field and I stopped in at, uh, at Murphy's Bleachers or I stopped at the Cubby Bear. Um, but, that's not right because it, that assumes that had you not gone to that baseball game, you would have eaten nothing that day. You would have even wouldn't have even considered going. You would have fasted and sat in your closet with the lights out all day and not spending anything or engaging in the economy in any way. And so that's, again, uh, not the right way to think about that. You got to eat a lot of nachos at a sports bar to pay for a $350 million investment in a stadium. <laughs> and that's right as well. So one of the things is you say, well, look, this person, this might generate thousands and thousands of, 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 of people there. So, for example, you think about something like the Olympics and you say, wow, this is great because it's generating, you know, 200,000, uh, 200,000 uh, new visitors, Right. But, you know, if the Olympics cost you $2 billion, and man, $2 billion would be the cheapest Olympics we've seen in decades. But even if it cost you $2 billion, each of those 200,000 people would have to spend $10,000 in the city. And that's a lot of money to spend. And, 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 and you're assuming you're spending $10,000 without actually, without actually incurring any costs. Uh, so I, I see economic impact statements all the time where they say, you know, one of the big things about this event is everyone comes in, they drive in from across the state and they watch this thing and they then they fill up in, at the gas station before they leave and go home. And, you know, we sell $50 million worth of gas because of all these people who come there. And so it's a $50 million benefit. It's like, no, have you never thought about how a gas station works? Literally, to sell $50 million worth of gas, you're buying $49 million of gas from the from the supplier, from Texas, from Saudi Arabia, from Venezuela. And, and really, the city is only generating a million dollars of, of money out of that $50 million spent on gas. So again, even if 200,000 people were going to spend $10,000 each, in order for that to actually generate uh, $2 billion worth of benefits, this money, this these activities would have had to be costless. So the food you're selling them is free, right? Uh, the services you're providing in the hotel are free. And of course, none of that's true. Have there ever been, I mean, from what we've we've been talking about here, it sounds like most of these public money investments into these types of events or venues are, I mean, it's a money losing venture. Have there been any situations where the city or, or the government has actually come out on top? Um, yeah, so I think the ones we can point to, uh, the Olympics in 1984, the Summer Olympics uh, in, in Los Angeles, uh, looked like they were pretty good. 
uh, and uh, they generated an actual profit there. And of course, the reason for that is that we were uh, that in that particular case, uh, the only bidder for the Olympics in 1984 was Los Angeles. So Los Angeles said, hey, we're going to run this our way. Uh, don't tell us to put down gold-plated uh, gold plated toilets for the uh, IOC executives. Uh, we're going to use old stadiums. We're going to use the Coliseum. Uh, we're going to use the Rose Bowl uh, facilities that were built for the last <laughs> the last Olympics back in the you know 1920s and 1930s, right? So it was super old uh, sort of uh, facilities. We're not building new stuff. We're putting students in dorms, not in in beautiful hotels. So um, and that one that one turned out like they like they made a lot of money. But the problem is. Once that happened, you had cities saying, oh, you can make money on this. So they started bidding against one another. And once there's multiple bidders, it's not who can produce the best Olympics, but who can produce the most extravagant Olympics. And so we've seen things like, you know, the latest Tokyo Games, uh, which, of course, were marred by by COVID, which wasn't their fault. Uh, but just the Olympic Stadium for that event um, exceeded in costs after accounting for inflation, exceeded the cost of running the entire 1984 Olympics. Just one stadium cost more than the entire price tag of the 1984 Olympics. Uh, there's just no way you're going to be making money on a on a mega event if you're spending billions of dollars to attract it. So again, if you're spending tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars on Formula One tracks that that the city is supposed to pay for or new uh, facilities so that you can host these events. There's just no way you're going to make money on that. So one last question, then. Why do governments keep falling for this? If it's if it's such a bad thing, are are the the people that are that are touting this? Are they just that good salespeople? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they are good salespeople because they can throw millions of dollars into this. So the uh, the uh, and it's always the case when you've got a special interest. A narrow special interest can always perform better than a general uh, general good of the public, where everyone is is benefiting a little bit. Is always a much harder case to make than one person benefiting a lot. The case I like to make is. Uh, when we built AT&T Stadium in uh, Dallas, it was the first billion dollar stadium in, in the country. Um, Jerry Jones actually went out to the uh, and, and had an election, which is a much better way to do this than having uh, bought and paid for city councilors uh, uh, doing this behind closed doors. But uh, you do an election and uh, he said, I want three hundred twenty five million dollars from Arlington to build my stadium. Uh, he spent a million dollars campaigning for that. Right. The anti side spent about $5,000, maybe $25,000. So they were outspent at least 40 to 1. Jerry Jones literally sent the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders door to door to uh, to stomp for votes. Uh, the anti-stadium people sent me out. Uh, I, I'm a little, I'm sorry to say that I lost to the uh, Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders, but that's not really my fault, I think. Uh, you know, and, and so this is the sort of thing that happens is, is that, yeah, you have just much more organized, targeted campaigns, uh, you know, these very expensive uh, productions. And, of course, Sheldon Adelson, back to him, you know, when the mayor, uh, when, if I were to call the mayor of, of uh, Las Vegas and said, this is a terrible deal. What are you doing offering a dime to the A's? I'm, they're just not going to pick up my my phone call. But Sheldon Adelson calls. Well, that would be weird because he's dead. But Sheldon Adelson or his like call and you pick up that phone. So billionaires get their their phone calls answered. Uh, the people with the actual facts don't necessarily. Victor, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to have a conversation about this. It's a lot of fun. I could talk about this stuff all day. Um, but uh, again, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and have the chat. 
Fantastic. Again, always love to do that. I mean, enjoy your stadium uh, and enjoy your uh, baseball team. But again, uh, Vegas should also enjoy uh, their uh, $325 million taxpayer uh, taxpayer uh, uh, taxes that they're going to be on the hook for. And that wraps up another episode of Jeff Does Vegas. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. Or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been Jeff Does Vegas, a Walker New Media production.